0: The disruptive history of LucasArts games. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is David Fox, immersive storytelling pioneer, co-founder, director, and game developer at Electric Eggplant. Welcome, David. Hi. So what does Electric Eggplant do? And tell us about your journey in the world of game development.
1: Well, Electric Eggplant is a small really two-person company that my wife and I founded back in 1992, soon after I left Lucasfilm. And the intent was to be a publisher, developer of media, games, um, books, and podcasts, and things like that. And, um, you know, so we don't have a staff. If I do a project, I'll either work with other people or we'll bring on people for projects as needed.
0: Disruption is a word we use along with other words like digital, organizational, and cultural to explain many of the events that happen in our rapidly changing society. You were there at the start of Lucasfilm. Is it fair to say that you were, that you and your coworkers, I should say, at the time, were some of the earliest
1: disruptors in immersive storytelling? Um, I well, I think we'd like to think so. <laughs> that was kind of the intent. Um, you know we we were um I was there in nineteen eighty two when we started Lucasfilm games um, Lucasfilm itself was around for at least ten years before that um, with other with films basically and this was the first time that Lucasfilm was venturing into um, interactive media and you know, originally we were kind of an experimental group within the larger computer division which eventually was the group that became Pixar and Steve Jobs bought. So we were a small group within Pixar, or sorry, within the computer division. And our edict at first was just really to think out of the box, be creative. Um, You know, we had our own internal pressure because we felt like we had to live up to the reputation of Star Wars. So back in 1982, this was um, right after... second film empire strikes back came out they were still in production for return of the jedi star wars was still huge and we felt a lot of pressure to essentially be the star wars of games and to kind of break that pressure we the first two games we did were described as throwaway games they were going to be more of an experiment Uh, we try some new things if they didn't work then there wouldn't be the pressure to publish them. But as it turned out, they turned out to be really great games. So that was uh, mine was Rescue on Fractalus and the other game was Ballblazer. They were being developed at the same time. Both were very breakthrough. Um, we were doing things on 8-bit microcomputers that had never been done before. People can believe it. I think in, in the case of Ballblazer, people were looking under the table for video disc players. Thinking maybe that the fast frame rate that we were getting from that must be a faked. Um, with with rescue, um, we were getting great frame rates on rescue on fractal, tech, you know, fractal landscapes. You're flying through these landscapes, and it just was it wasn't something people had seen before. So there's a big technical breakthrough there. Later on, I think it was more. Um, in fact, all the games I worked on after that one were really story-based games, and. I felt that was a really good match for Lucasfilm as a company that really tells stories, and but ours were much longer form. Uh, graphic adventures tended to be thirty or forty hours long at the time, and had plenty of time to you know develop the stories and and make them really as immersive as, immersive as you could with that, you know with blocky limited graphics.
0: You mentioned breakthroughs. What were some of the technical breakthroughs of the time that helped you transform the art of storytelling?
1: Well, part of it was technical. Part of it, I think, was environment. Um, it, it was probably very unusual for a startup, essentially a startup game company, to have deep pockets. Um, you know, we we didn't have to really worry about having huge hits right out the door. In fact, we you know we were told to stay small and to not lose any money um but to do really great stuff and that was really the focus so um you know we had tools that other people didn't have at the time uh, even though we were developing on um, 6502 based uh computers a Commodore 64 atari 800 um we weren't developing directly on them. We we could use, you know, VAC 750s to uh, running Unix to do the compiles and to do the editing. And then after that, we started using Sun micros- Microsystems um, workstations. I have one in my office. And so all the development was done on a large computer. Then we, you know, use a cross assembler, cross compilers and download to the target machine. And that freed up a lot of um, time to, you know, to let the, the larger computers do a lot more of the work to get the code optimized and to, you know, to do that part rather than trying to do it on the machine you're working on. You know, there was, a, there was some time because you had to download it to the target machine. Um, but overall, I thought that it saved a bunch of time. That um, also meant that all the code, the code could be backed up automatically with the rest of the um, everything else we were doing. And um, it, I think that just helped. Um, later on, when PCs became powerful enough to do the development directly on the machine, then you know, then that was not a big advantage. But I think we still had the advantage, which again was not technical, of not having to rush things out the door in order to avoid collapsing as a company. Um, we knew we had, um, you know, it was don't ship. I don't know if I could say that <laughs> you can beat that out if you'd like um we were we really wanted to get things right, so we had even though we had schedules they weren't at least during the time I was there in the eighties they weren't like you know absolute um unchangeable schedules you know we could if we needed to go longer to get something right, we could do that.
0: Where did the inspiration come from back then? Was it all George Lucas, or did you draw from other pioneers at the time, or or earlier?
1: Well, when I first started there, I I assumed that my first game would be a Star Wars game, of course, and that was the intent. And on day one, I realized, or found out, that we weren't allowed to do Star Wars games. Um, At that time, the license for everything Star Wars had already been sold uh, to other companies. I think it was Parker Brothers and Kenner for Home and Atari for Arcade. And so we had to come up with our own stuff. Um, So for at least the time I was there during the 1980s, everything we did was original IP, unless it was authorized to say, say, um, the two two games I worked on, uh, one was based on the movie Labyrinth, which was a Lucasfilm production, and the other was based on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was also Lucasfilm. Um, but the other games we worked on were original IP. Um, George didn't have a lot of involvement. Um, he did on he did um, on my first game rescue, where he came in during the beta period for about 20 minutes, played the game, had some brilliant suggestions, which totally changed the way the game is in. Uh, Makes it memorable still today is people's first game that gave them a jump scare. And um, that was George's idea to increase attention and totally change the game at the time. Um, But after that, he really didn't, he wasn't really involved. Um, I think that was a blessing for us because I know that later on in the 90s and the 2000s, when pretty much almost everything that LucasArts, which was what Lucasfilm Games became, was doing with Star Wars. And as it became, as the games became more and more realistic, I think George was more and more involved in terms of giving direction, making suggested changes, which may or may not have messed up the schedules. And, um, you know, I think we, in a sense, dodged a bullet by not having to have him leaning over our shoulders um, and looking at the screen while we were doing stuff.
0: What were some of the lessons you learned about storytelling in those early days that seemed disruptive then, but have actually stood the test of time?
1: Well, one of the things that we did for Maniac Mansion, which was a game I got to work on, was designed by Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick, and I was the scum scriptor. It was written in that was the introduction to the scum scum language, or scum stands for a script creation utility for maniac mansion. And um, Ron came up with the idea of doing cutscenes, scenes, and this is now ubiquitous. Every, you know, that's nothing unusual, but at the time that really wasn't being done where you'd have a cutaway to parallel action or something happening elsewhere in the in the environment, which is, you know, really a, a very movie-like. I mean, in, in movies that happens all the time where you cut between different um, story paths or different things that happen or flashbacks or whatever. But I don't remember seeing that much in, in games um we we had a lot of dialogue um we were really focused on making it easier for the player to get through the game and i believe at that time our i say our chief competitor for graphic adventures was Sierra online and, and they had a reputation for putting up barriers to, that killed you at every opportunity so you do something like pick up a piece of glass a broken mirror and you cut yourself and bleed out, and that'd be the end of the game. you have to start you know start from a saved game and we felt that things that you could do in real life shouldn't be things that would kill you in a computer game and so we started we would we at first we didn't eliminate deaths completely, but we'd pretty much telegraph that this was something that could be dangerous um so you knew that what you were getting into if you wanted to try. Know, pushing the button for a nuclear weapon or something that would probably blow up and you'd probably die. But you know, walking down the stairs probably wasn't going to kill you. Um and that idea of of really playing letting the story unwind with as few barriers as possible um was something I think we did that was different than most of the games at the time. Um, and in the game I most recently worked on with with the same crew, Thimbleweed Park, um, I think we got that to a much more refined place where you really can't die at all. There are no dead ends. And not only can you not die, there are no dead ends in the game. So there's always a point where you can complete the game no matter what you've done. And because we really want you to finish, we want you to have the experience of getting through it and to enjoy and not be really frustrated. So we added a hint system, we added um, a lot of things that make it easier, like lists of checklists of things you have to do, um, reminders from the characters of things they have to do. It makes it feel integrated um, to the story, and we really want you to experience the story like you would a movie. I mean, if, if everyone walked out halfway through a movie, then that wouldn't be a very good experience. You you, you never know what happened, and, and I mean you have that choice, but it's pretty rare. I think people do that. So in a game, if you can't get through it and you get too frustrated, that's not very fun.
0: So true. Making games fun. David Fox, co-founder, game developer at Electric Eggplant and immersive storytelling pioneer. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about your history. And how here we are today uh, because of people like yourself. David, if somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to find out more about your work. How can they do that?
1: Well, you can find me through my website, Electric Eggplant, I like the vegetable. Dot com. Um, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, David B. Fox, B as in boy, um, Facebook as well. But I think Twitter is probably where I'm most active, so you could probably catch me there.
0: Sounds good. Thank you so much, David. Thank and you. if you guys, you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.